0: coming up on the scott thompson show podcast are we in a third wave where are we with astrazeneca vaccines canada is 54th in the world in vaccination it's all coming up on the scott thompson show podcast today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml i'm curtis thompson scott's son canada is 54th in the world for getting its citizens vaccinated nice one canada I'm not sure why that doesn't bother more adults. Because in a kid's world, 54 is a D minus, and I'd get in big trouble for that one. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as we are week number 54, 3. No, sorry. I'm confusing the week it is or where we are in line. Uh, Fifty Week number 53, 54th in line in the world uh, to get our citizens vaccinated. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. Another jam-packed show today and lots of information to uh, pass along. Uh, Premier Doug Ford going to hold a news conference at one o'clock. We will, uh, of course, go to that live. Uh, there's all kinds of chatter about uh, a third wave. Listen to this report. Dr. Peter Uni says he doesn't want to do it, but says the data makes it clear that we need to shut things down again, particularly in the Golden Horseshoe.
1: If we want to avoid the Greek tragedy here now, we just need to do the right thing and we need to do it early because it's inevitable anyway.
0: uni says strict lockdowns were the right thing to do before and unfortunately, unfortunately, will be again.
1: The reason that we're in such a good shape still, I know it's depressing, but we're still in good shape right now is that we did the right thing, which is challenging.
0: Uni says he hates lockdowns as much as everybody else, but says it is better to react earlier than later so we don't flood our intensive care units. Sandy Salerno, Global News. And that's Andy speaking with the head of the Ontario uh, Science Table. Let's bring in Chris Bau, Research Chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling, infectious disease outbreaks with the University of Waterloo and with us now. Chris, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this information that's coming out uh, from the Ontario Science Table in regard to uh, the third wave?
1: So I agree with their assessment. Uh, I think the third wave has already started since we're seeing an increase in cases uh, in Toronto and uh, most large population areas in the GTA. so uh, And this is a combination of the fact that we're reopening uh, at the same time as we have this more transmissible variant that's circulating.
0: So, what is uh, what determines a third wave? what what, uh, what criteria is used to say, okay, yep, we're here?
1: Well, I, you, you, there's no like strict epidemiological definition. It's more like uh, it, it, it's it's a bit like an ocean wave. You know, if cases go up and they ebb again, then that's a wave. And so, what we saw in the past few months is we saw this this surge over the fall and winter, and then this really rapid decline, which was, which was such great news, uh, in over January to February. Uh, and that was a result of, of the lockdown that started on Boxing Day. Uh, so, so recently what we've observed is that the cases have, you know, first of all, they've flattened out, uh, and now they're starting to rise again. And it's been a pretty consistent rise. Uh, and so we would describe that as a third wave if the cases continue to rising and then peaked again. Uh, and the reason you know we think that's very likely is that uh, the you know we're we're lifting those restrictions once again uh, in, in the presence of that variant. So that's kind of roughly what what a third wave is. But it's not like a, uh, doesn't have a strict definition like you know your your body mass index or your blood right, pressure. Right. It's more more to, it's more um, uh, it, it's not quite as it, well defined in the medical literature. It's more of a media description actually.
0: So um, we remember where we were uh, this time last year and what happened as we went into to spring and such. And, and just naturally, people get outdoors more. There's less indoor activity and such uh, as well. This time we have uh, long term care that have been vaccinated, uh, which obviously was, uh, you know, an incredible vulnerable uh, segment of the population. So how will that change a third wave? how would we compare us? And I know I'm asking you to give give us answers that that aren't there yet. Um, but but how do you think uh, the third wave will compare to the first, considering we've got long-term care vaccinated and we are moving into that time out of winter and into spring?
1: Yeah, that, that'll make a, a, a big, big difference. So uh, in terms of the impact of the vaccination, that's going to reduce the death rates uh, even further, since, as you know, the first and second wave, the death rates already declined as we learned more about how to treat patients. Uh, We learned about steroids, for example, to help increase the the survival rates. And now we have more experience. And on top of that, we also have the vaccine. So I I think we'll see uh, many cases in the third wave, but the chances uh, of death if you have COVID will be a lot less. Uh, Now, exactly how that you know, tug of war will play out and whether or not we'll see overall more deaths than in the second wave, I'm not really sure. Um, but, you know, given that we're vaccinating 80, 80 year olds at the moment, uh, and given that they have these horribly high rates of, of dying from COVID, then I, I hope that the benefits of the vaccine will be significant. Uh, you also mentioned the weather. So that's an important factor. So with, with the with the, with the the season improving, people will be spending more time outdoors, which is which is good. But of course, we had a, a, a third wave last spring as well. So it, it, it helps, but it, it won't uh, save the day for us. Uh, um, I might you, actually, sorry, go ahead. No, you can go ahead. Go. Yeah, I was going to add that there's uh, some evidence that you know, sun exposure can actually help you fight uh, COVID viruses, just in the way, same way that it helps us fight influenza and, and certain other microbes. So, you know, potentially with more sun exposure, people might actually be that are able to fight off the virus, although that hasn't been established definitively for COVID yet.
0: Uh, Obviously, um, the the plan to keep the second dose back for uh, for those that have been vaccinated has been dropped, and and now it's get as many vaccines into people's arms as possible, uh, just simply because we do not have the supply coming in uh, consistently. Uh, Do you agree with delaying that second dose and just getting as much of the first out as we can? Yeah, and then, of course, having to wait four months.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the right call. Uh, so, you know, to give you some background, when the vaccines were first tested, everyone in the experiments got the, the two doses. And so we didn't really have much information on how well one dose protects. And so, the, you know, so the, the public health decision was, we don't know if one dose protects or not. Let's make sure we give everyone two doses. But now we have this new information suggesting that one dose does protect fairly well. Uh, and this actually is true for many vaccines. The standard is two doses, but, you know, one dose gives you most of the protection you need, around uh, 70 to 90 percent of what you need. And so given this limited vaccine supply, you're much better off vaccinating two people with something that's maybe 70 to 90 percent effective uh, rather than one person with, with something that's 95 percent effective. You just you're, you're covering more people on average that way. So I think that's uh, I, I strongly support that change.
0: Is this a race between the variants and the vaccine?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So that's why it's ever more important to, to you know, get you know, sign up your, your elderly parents, right? If they need help getting signed up, help get them signed up. Uh, we need to vaccinate as many vulnerable Canadians as soon as we can before the combination of the reopening and the variant causes a big surge in cases.
0: What about the third wave in other countries? What can we learn from that? I mean, my goodness, we're seeing shots of the U.S. in spring break. Oddly enough, it didn't, it looks a lot like it did a year ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're vaccinating at such a rate, I guess they feel secure enough to, to dump the mask, uh, laws in some, uh, states, uh, Texas, uh, to, to, to point out, um, but is what are your thoughts about where they are and in other parts of the world in a third wave as they're farther along in vaccination than we are?
1: Yeah, so typically we do see this effect whereby whatever happens in Europe happens a bit later in the States and then in Canada a bit after that. And so with the variant, there have been large surges uh, in December and January, for example, in the UK and Ireland. They had very rapid increases in cases over a very short period of time uh, that that uh, that triggered additional lockdowns. And those are still happening in, in other, in, you know, in Italy, for example, right now. Uh, so something similar will play out in Ontario. So I, I think based on what we know about the transmissibility, the variant and past experience, we'll see the surge in cases here, too. The main difference is that it, because it's a bit later, we have some vaccines in Ontario now. Uh, and so that will lessen the impact. So we're lucky in that respect. And the U.S. is also very lucky in the respect that they have much larger vaccine production and they're ahead of us in the vaccination, uh, process. So I don't know if, if, you know, they will also experience a third wave in in, in COVID deaths. Uh, they may still experience that because they're perhaps, you know, dropping the mask mandates too quickly in many places, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, uh, so, you know, bottom line is that, you know, we're very likely to see a, a very large surge in cases. It may not materialize into a surge in deaths. Uh, it really depends on, on uh, on, um, the vaccine program. Uh, so we might be spared the surge in deaths that occurred in Europe when they were hit by, by the variant, uh, in the past few months.
0: What about the U.S. borders, uh, the U.S.-Canadian border? Rather, uh, there was chatter uh, last week uh, uh, that there was pressure from U.S. northern U.S. states uh, on the president to get this uh, border open. Obviously, it's, it means a lot to those border cities, uh, tourism, trade, what have you. Uh, obviously, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But do Canadians have to? Do Canadians have to be fully vaccinated before uh, the border? Uh, will reopen. I mean, in the end, uh, or sorry, at the beginning, it was we were concerned about how much it was spreading in the U.S. and and closed the borders for that reason. Now, is it Canada that will have to wait to be vaccinated before they will reopen?
1: Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that there do need to be more Canadians vaccinated for it to reopen. I don't think it has to be 100% because we'll reach herd immunity before that point. Uh, Remember that herd immunity is the sum of both the natural immunity from, from people who have recovered from infection, as well as the vaccine immunity. So that's one thing. And the second thing, it, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent, maybe more like a uh, um, 70 or 80% on the higher end, if we're talking about the new variant. Um, so, you know, uh, and and I think we also have reasons to be worried about what's coming from the states because they do have uh, so many cases of, of COVID-19 uh, and you know, they might have love vaccines, but we don't. So it, it's, uh, I don't know what the U.S. perspective is, but I think we should be thinking about protecting ourselves by, by maintaining the border closures uh, for longer uh, because we're just not getting people vaccinated fast enough to take that risk. That would kind of add a third factor on top of reopening and the variant. If we're going to reopen the borders as well, that's, that's kind of a, a, a third part of a triple whammy, you might call it, that could cause a dangerous surge in cases that we're not ready to deal with.
0: Chris, what's your message to listeners here to Canadians ontarians, whoever's listening uh because obviously we're everybody's fatigued. I don't need to tell you that and and obviously there's vaccines on the horizon, but I you know they're trickling in still we still don't have enough for max vaccination sites at this point uh to really kick off and and, and make a difference now we're hearing a third wave uh, you know what message do you have for those listening?
1: Uh, you know two things so. First of all, uh, we, we shouldn't get impatient. So what we know from the history of, of pandemic mitigation, and, and this is also what the models say, is that you know if, if you lift lockdowns too soon, you miss an opportunity to get cases close to zero and to contain it. Um, so so the, the approach is correct that you know we should, if, if you lock down sooner and if you do it hard, then you'll be able to get out of the lockdown quicker. Uh, you know, for example, for every week sooner that you shut down, you might be able to um, uh, lift the lockdown two weeks uh, earlier, later on, later down the road. Um, so in other words, foresight pays off if, uh, in terms of mitigating the economic damage, uh, act sooner, uh, not later. And the second thing is, is we, this is a lesson from the model that we've developed, and we've been looking back at the March 2020 outbreak, and we've been asking the question you know, what, what, would have, what would have happened if we hadn't locked down? Uh, and, of course, we will never know that uh, from real data because, uh, because the situation didn't happen. But we, what we can do is we can take our models, we can fit it to the data we have, and then we can turn things off or on and off in the model. And one thing we've done is we've said, well, okay, we've, this is a model for Ontario. It matches what happened. Now let's suppose in our model that, we, that no one distanced and no one locked down back in March 2020, and the results we saw from the model that we're, and we're going to release these, they're absolutely staggering. So we had 3,000 deaths, in, 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 in fact, in March 2020. But if we hadn't locked down in March 2020, and if we hadn't distanced, the best case scenario would have been 50,000 deaths. And that's kind of optimistic, assuming that the health system wouldn't have been overwhelmed. And of course, it would have been overwhelmed. We would have been having a situation where people are, are trying to call the ambulance and they can't get one. Uh, so I think, you know, just keep that in mind that the, the efforts do pay off and they'll continue paying off. And we've only got a little bit further to go uh, until we can get everyone vaccinated. And every time that you put on a mask, uh, socially distance, you're, you're still saving lives. That was true in March. And that's true now. So that's, that, that's my main message
0: um, that I would uh, want Canadians to hear. Uh, we're almost out of time. We are out of time. But is, a, is another lockdown inevitable?
1: Uh, it's it's hard for me to say because it's a it's a political decision. Um, yeah. So, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if a third lockdown happened. Uh, but it all depends upon what the what the people in Queens Park decide to do. Yeah.
0: Twelve twenty seven. Chris Bowsman with his research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and specialist in mathematical computer modeling infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Chris, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Many Canadians think that the world has a very favorable view of Canada and Canadians, and maybe they did, but not in the new world of COVID-19. That view is changing as the world realizes Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has failed Canadians on three fronts. Number one, we're expecting other countries to look after us and send us their vaccine because we neglected to sign production or licensing deals last year, putting everyone in a very uncomfortable position of having to ask for handouts while... Countries are trying to vaccinate their own citizens. Number two, we are online to receive many, many more vaccinations than Canada has citizens. Trying to make up for the bad choices the Prime Minister made by trying to sign a vaccination deal with China. That is hoarding. Number three, we are receiving vaccinations from COVAX, an organization supported by developed countries to help the less fortunate vaccinate. Canada is not an underdeveloped country, yet we are taking vaccines meant for them. However, none of this is ever mentioned in the Canadian media, and our Prime Minister can do no wrong. When will Canadians finally realize this is not a distribution problem with the provinces? It's a supply issue with the federal government, and they have a very limited supply coming in of COVID-19 vaccination and won't have enough for max vaccination sites, for weeks to come. Why aren't we talking about that and instead picking on the provinces? I'm Scott Thompson. We've been talking about AstraZeneca. Thanks. We've been talking about AstraZeneca quite a bit, uh, obviously, because um, I guess uh, it was in 19 countries uh... in europe have put a pause on it uh... due to uh, thirty seven individuals and this is out of millions vaccinated uh... had issues uh with clotting. It is not yet known whether there is any direct link. This is uh a precaution from these nineteen countries. Uh oddly enough, uh the National uh, National Advisory Council on Immunization has now opened this up for sixty five plus, which uh do you have the clip, Will, of the chair of uh of NASI? Uh this is the chair of NASI and uh, explaining the change in uh, the re- recommendation for AstraZeneca initially, Health Canada had approved it for those over 65. Uh, then the National Advisory Council said, "No, uh, we're not going to do that," uh, which you know confuses even more. Here's what the chair of uh, the uh, National Advisory Committee on Immunization had to say:
2: We have since considered
1: three, well, two other real-world effectiveness studies that have um, informed this change in recommendation. In light of the new evidence that emerged in those two real-world effectiveness data, NACI met to review these data from the studies, two of which are large population-level studies of good quality, demonstrating that AstraZeneca vaccine is safe and effective in older adults, in particular against severe disease. While all available vaccines in Canada are safe and effective, NACI still recommends that in the context of limited vaccine supply, Initial doses of mRNA vaccines should be prioritized for those at highest risk of severe illness and death and highest risk of exposure.
0: But of course, some are questioning uh, the situation that has been happening around the world and how this vaccine is being viewed and uh, further testing ongoing. Let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, professor and chair Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University, and is with us now. Rodney, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get going here, Doctor, on on uh, the depth of, of COVID-19 in both of our countries, what is the U.S.'s position right now on AstraZeneca? Where is it in your arsenal?
3: Yeah, from, from everything I've seen and read and, and, and talked with others about, right now the United States is looking at AstraZeneca as a fourth vaccine option. And so they're going through their typical advisory, expert advisory panels and, and such for to look at the data, as Canada has been doing. And it looks like it, it'll probably be approved, and it's looking like it's probably going to be in April sometime. So we're still a little ways out from it. As of today, that's what I'm seeing.
0: So how come uh, the U.S. is slower to approve this drug when we've seen Europe and Canada go ahead with it? Any, any thought there?
3: You know, just I think just personally, I think what's happening is it's just since we have three approved vaccines and we're, you know, we're doing pretty well now. I think we've reached three million people a day that we're vaccinating. I just don't think it's on the highest priority list. And we just kind of moved along with those three. But certainly they look like they're looking at a fourth one. It's, It's interesting. I've had that question from colleagues here kind of asking about that fourth vaccine. What do we need it for? Those types of questions. And I'm not sure, you know, we need four or five, six vaccines, but certainly right now when we're not sure uh, of supply and manufacturing issues that we aren't just kind of hedging our bets and making sure we have plenty at at the end of the
0: day. So for the U.S., it's just not a priority because they have uh, you're producing your own. You've got Moderna, you've got Pfizer, and this isn't a priority for the United States. Boy, that's that's, an envious position for uh, you to be in, Rodney. We're jealous of that up here.
3: Well, that's, I mean, that's my thats my understanding without being, yeah. you know, on the inside of governmental decisions. But everything I've seen, that's kind of where it stands. And, and, you know, a month ago, you know, I wasn't feeling as good as I am today. It's definitely been, the last few weeks have been encouraging uh, because the U.S. has seen, you know, an uptick in what they can lay out in a given day, as well as it appears, according to all the sources from the president down, that, manufacturing is at a a pace now to where by may 1st you probably heard the president's speech the other day that we should be able to give you know at least start giving anyone that wants it from 18 and up around may 1st or so it'll it'll take a while but but it looks to be trending in a good way
0: so when do you think you'll see americans fully vaccinated and by that i mean herd immunity not necessarily everyone
3: yeah i think for the ones that want to be and can be, uh, I think we're looking at, again, probably June 1st into the summer uh, because May 1st is, from what I've understood, is where we will have enough vaccine to say, okay, everybody now 18 and above can get going. But obviously there'll still be an issue of bottlenecking with lines, you know, and getting people through the through the uh, the gates, so to speak. So probably sometime over the summer, maybe towards later summer.
0: And spring break, obviously, going on. We have seen shots of of Texas and, and such. Uh, your thoughts of of uh, the masking stopping in Texas and, and where you guys are?
3: Yeah, so in Texas, you know, and, and I know you see that, that announcement from our governor a few weeks ago. Um, I, I don't agree with it. I think most health experts don't agree with it in the sense that we still don't have but about 50 to 60 percent of our 65 and older fully vaccinated we still don't have, you know, a high proportion of those who are immunocompromised fully vaccinated. So, I was I was personally hopeful that he would have waited till May 1 or June 1 and and made that type of decision for the summer when maybe it was a little more safe to do so. Um it, it's certainly a decision, you know, he gets to make and 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 move forth on that, but I I think most health experts were hoping that that would not happen. Fortunately, if you look across the state, uh, from my perspective, many, many, many businesses are not doing that. Many universities are not doing that. Uh, many are choosing to keep those mandates in place, at least in places of business and in places of, of schooling and things like that, and certainly in healthcare. So hopefully we can kind of hold on to that um, in a high percentage until we get into the summer.
0: How concerned are you about spring break? Are you concerned of a surge a couple of weeks from now? I, I am. I mean, I hope, and I've, I've told this
3: to, to many people I hope I'm completely wrong, and I hope that nothing happens. But we've seen this three times now uh, in the U.S. where we've had either holidays or other types of events where uh, we've relaxed a little bit and put our guard down, and then we see a surge. And so. I'm holding my breath. Uh, spring break uh, is anywhere from all last week. Ours is this week for my university, and there's some next week. So it's kind of a, a rolling month in March. So I'm I'm going to be watching, like many experts watch, probably mid-April, uh, you know, beyond, two or three weeks into April and looking for that, as well as, you know, we're still kind of worried about those different variants, and so we're not real sure how that's going to play on the population's immunity, those who have had it and are been vaccinated. So a couple of factors there that have some of us holding our breath.
0: Uh, Up here in Ontario today, we're talking about modeling and such and a third wave, uh, just simply because it's a race between the variants and the vaccine up here. We're just not getting the vaccine in fast enough to the country. How concerned are you about a third wave in the U.S.?
3: Well, if you had asked me a month ago, a month and a half ago, I'd have been very concerned. Right now, I would say I'm kind of moderately concerned. I mean, with with what we're seeing with our numbers dropping, hospitalizations going down, mortality dropping, I'd say I'm kind of moderately concerned. It's still definitely possible uh, for another surge to happen when you don't have herd immunity up in that 70 to 80, maybe even higher percentage. We're not there. So that's I think that's what all of us are holding our breath for as we move into April and May. And, again, that's kind of why hopefully most people will continue doing the right thing with masks and hand washing and, you know, social distancing until we get into the summer when we can really see. You know, it's really tough, Scott, because people are, as you know, are tired of it and and they want to move forward. But I keep using the analogy, you don't want to be that person who, you know, starts celebrating before the touchdown, right? We're probably on the five-yard line here or so, and we don't want to start acting like we've scored yet, it's not quite there yet. So if we can hang on for a couple more months, get into the summer and look at the data, and maybe we can start making those decisions to where we can open up and and do things a little differently next fall.
0: So Rodney as you mentioned uh we're a year, over a year into this now fatigue at a high t- at an all-time high everybody's feeling this. Um what's the discussion in the United States like now because uh, obviously I'm hearing optimism in your voice different from even you said you know would be right. a month ago and such. What is the discussion down there now? Uh does it involve uh hesitancy for example are there those that say no, not for me as far
3: as the vaccine goes? Yes. You know, again, yeah, unfortunately, and I was looking at some of the surveys uh, and, and the news stories today about Canada around that as well. U.S. is not different. This is not a U.S. or Canada problem. Unfortunately, there are large percentages of people when you look across the world uh, that just don't trust the vaccine. And that's unfortunate. Um, we see everything that we need to see, including an in AstraZeneca. When you look at the data, when you actually look at the data, um, safe in comparison to the general population, even the clotting issue, the blood clotting issue, when you actually look into the data, which a lot of people don't, there's about, oh, let's see, I think it was roughly about 30 clotting events among about 5 million people. So the WHO, uh, NACI in Canada, the European countries, and the U.S., for that matter, have, you know, compared that and said that there's no causal evidence for compared to normal uh, population. In other words, there there is no real strong, hard causal cause and effect evidence for that issue. So, people continue to support that vaccine as well as the others. There are always going to be some, you know, small number of effects that happen with different populations, and we're always going to be concerned about that and watch it. But it's really going back, you know, decade or so now. Uh, and maybe further back where you have kind of this anti-science, anti-education, anti-vaccination issues. And we, you know, that's a long road to go down into that rabbit hole. But that's what we're fighting, Scott. And and part of why I like coming on your show and shows around the country and the world is that experts have to be better science communicators. We have to raise the health literacy of the world, uh, especially in pockets where people, you know, sometimes are in echo chambers and they don't want to hear that. And we certainly need to make sure those who are willing to get the vaccine are who you can reach and maybe talk into getting that vaccine with evidence that we can get it to them. The sooner the better the first available vaccine because that gets us back to, you know, where we want to be.
0: And we certainly do uh, appreciate that time that you spend, Rodney, uh, getting that message across. So uh, obviously AstraZeneca not needed in the U.S. because you're banging out so much of the Pfizer and Moderna. It's not a priority even for approval at this point. But that being said, you know, a- as a professor, you you don't have issues with AstraZeneca. Uh, anything you could say to-, to others who are perhaps hesitant about it because yeah. of the inconclusive information we seem to be yeah. getting?
3: You know, I think part of the problem, Scott, and we we saw this in the US with uh, back way back uh, when this all started kind of coming around, J&J had a little bit of an issue with some of their data yeah. and how they reported it. Those unfortunate things, and that's why it's so critical for these companies, you know, and others who are working in this world of medicinal vaccinations, therapeutics, whatever the story is. And you know how this goes, if there's a little blip and it gets out into the news cycles, that's tough to change the tide. You know, it gets shared and shared and shared. And many times for transparency that's important. And so we want that to happen. But to turn that that person into looking at the actual data and to listening to experts that can tell them, we've corrected the problem, things are going forward, you know, we've looked at, you know, thirty thousand people in a trial and we've seen no adverse effects. I mean, those are the things I talk to people about. And and you have to do it in a sense that people can relate to that, that you're not using language that's confusing. And right now I would tell people that, you know, people like me and other experts that are studying this that have done it a long time, as of today, AstraZeneca, as well as the other approved vaccines are not showing anything that would concern me if it was a family member or my own family. If you have a concern and that's okay, at least sit down with your physician, do some research, and even if you make the decision later that's better than saying i will never take it give your give your you know give your brain the chance to digest the information talk to some physicians talk to other experts and allow your your mind the opportunity to at least you know accept that decision at a later date that's better than never and hopefully that's what will start happening
0: Great point. Uh, a lot of chatter, especially up here around the opening, reopening of the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, obviously, it's been closed uh, except for uh, trade and such uh, for for quite a period of time now. Uh, Northern U.S. states talking about getting it open. Uh, obviously, they need trade and tourism going through there. Uh, but obviously, Canada lagging behind in getting vaccination uh, into the country. When do you see or what will be the determining factor that uh, you see the us Canada border open?
3: Man, I can't wait for that day (laughs) or any border opening. I'm I'm missing travel probably more than anything during this year of this issue. But, you know, I think what's going to be the trigger um, is that the government and the governments across the countries will be monitoring hospitals. It's all going to come down to the actual cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. When we start seeing, and, and we are seeing these trends going down in a lot of countries, not not everywhere, but, but looking better and better across the countries that are doing it, that's when I think the trigger will be pulled. I just don't think we're going to pull it until we know that someone can go back and forth without you know, quarantining for two weeks when you get there and quarantining two weeks when you come back and and worrying about that you're incubating a new variant. I mean, those are things that worry health officials. So uh, it, it's it's frustrating, I know, because like most people, I too want to travel, but I understand the decisions, and I hope that as we move into the fall and into 2022 that some of those um, trade and, and travel issues start opening up a little bit.
0: When do you see uh, the U.S. being in a scenario uh, where they have enough for uh, whoever wants a vaccine vaccinated before uh, we will see any come across the border? And I know this is, you know, obviously uh, an issue that every country has to prepare and and, and look after their own citizens first. And and I'm certainly not suggesting anything otherwise here. But in Canada, where we're so desperate just to get this dang stuff into the country, uh, any idea when? There might be a point where you guys are done, and then we can start shipping some of this stuff across the border from yeah, uh, from uh, from Michigan.
3: That would be a, a great, you know, a great thing. And you know, I hope. I mean, this is just me talking. I hope that this happens sooner than later. I mean, I, I continue to hope that the U.S. and other countries will open up their supplies to not just Canada, of course, but you know, other non-developed countries that need it uh they may not have the kind of funding that other countries have. And, and I always tell people that ask me that, and this is not to downplay anything, but we have to remember it's a global pandemic. So everyone that wants a vaccine, regardless of borders and regardless of countries, needs one. If they're willing to get one, I would hope that we can have that happen. And, you know, again, I'm not I'm not a government official, but I hope the U.S. is looking at that and. Uh, As President Biden mentioned the other day, May 1st is supposedly the date we're looking at of opening up vaccines to 18 above anybody who wants it. And when that day happens, I hope that soon after, you know, maybe by June 1, the summer, that we can start producing, you know, enough and to kind of be able to look forward to our supplies and go, okay, we have X amount of vaccines. We only have this many people left that need it. We have a surplus of, you know. 60 million, let's 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 shoot this over to Canada or split it among different countries. And I hope everybody does that. I mean, that's what it's going to take to get this thing to stop sooner than later. You, you can't really hoard and not help. I mean, this is not a time. You can't do that in public health in general. Global public health is, is something that we need to be working with each other.
0: Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, professor and chair, Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, sir, and have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. I want to play you an interesting report, though, from Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent and producer. This is in regard to Moderna, and they are going to test this, start testing this on kids in both Canada and the United States. In all, more than 6,700 children will be involved in this trial, with some as young as six months old. According to the drug maker, it'll be a two-phase trial. In part one, two doses of 25, 50, or 100 micrograms may be given to kids six months to one year. Kids two to 11 may get two doses from two dosage levels of 50 to 100 micrograms. In part two, more children will be involved and given doses based on the results from part one or a placebo. All will be followed for a year after their second dose to check for efficacy and anti Body levels. Some doctors have questioned going so young in children, while others point to severe respiratory illnesses that arose in some younger victims of COVID nineteen. Pfizer-BioNTech has plans to test younger people, while Johnson and Johnson intends to do trials on infants, including newborns, in the near future. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. All right, uh, interesting. Uh, and how would you uh, how would you convince your kids, uh, Junior? Go roll up your sleeve. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, today, of course, uh, more on AstraZeneca. The uh, National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, uh, has now said, uh, along with Health Canada, who have said this all along, that this is now uh, good for those 65 uh, plus and over. They say this was not a safety issue. This was a case of efficacy and, again, uh a lot of this testing is being done, uh, a lot of the safety testing obviously being done prior to the vaccinations release. And now as far as efficacy and duration, we are seeing those numbers come in uh, in real in real time and obviously uh, changing uh, position as we go. However, many have uh, been concerned that you have Health Canada. Uh, saying it was okay for those over 65, and then um, the National Advisory Committee not saying it, both government agencies, and a little confusing. Let's bring in Dr. Alan Baseman, infectious diseases, uh, infection control physician with the University Health Network. That's not a good sign, is it? Are you there, doctor? Uh, Yes, thank you for having me. Oh, you are there. I thought we lost you there for a second. Uh, Thank you for taking the time. I hope you're doing well, doctor. Your thoughts on uh, NACI changing their position on AstraZeneca, now saying okay for those 65 uh, plus, uh, similar to what Health Canada uh, Canada had said. Um, How come differences of opinion here with two agencies like this?
2: Yes, it's a great point. Uh, It's unfortunate that they did initially say that it's not it's not appropriate for that age group the story is is that what the time when nasi released that statement about a week or two weeks ago the data from the uk was just coming out that the uk that the vaccine was actually quite effective in the older age group and so now they're looking at data and revising it yeah i mean different agencies in canada may have different thresholds for what they consider to be efficacious so maybe that's the difference you see between health canada and nasi but I'm glad to see that now NACI is consistent with that and consistent with the real-world data that shows that it is effective.
0: Considering where we are in this pandemic, are you surprised that these two agencies are not on the same page? And I understand if there's independence there, and that's a good thing. But it seems like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing here.
2: Yeah, I agree that um, that independence is a good thing. Uh, Health Canada, their role is about. Um, their role is to approve medications and vaccinations, to say what is safe and who should be receiving it. NASI's a little bit their their role is a little bit different, a slightly different agency from the public health agency of Canada, which is like the public, the big public health body for the, the whole country. Their role is to make their best estimate as to how a vaccine should be given. So in their estimation at that time it was slightly different from the Health Canada, which simply made a statement of of safety and, and who can get it. So that's where there could be a difference in that opinion between those two groups
0: has this led to confusion around astrazeneca
2: yeah it's very unfortunate that now the the well has been poisoned for astrazeneca a very effective vaccine very safe vaccine and now unfortunately many people elderly individuals are will not want to take the vaccine because of that discordance between the two bodies but uh, as you know, there is the, the pilot study, pilot trialing of it in Ontario of giving it to the younger age groups, the people who actually mm-hmm. are interested in taking it. So at least, at least the doses will not go to waste.
0: Um, it's interesting because the U.S. has not even approved AstraZeneca yet. I was talking to a professor in Texas, and he said the reason being is it's just not a priority for them because they have so much of, of the other vaccine. They have so many uh, other options. But he did stress that there's nothing he can see in any of this uh, research that would that would uh, uh, present a situation where it's unsafe. And we should say, and perhaps uh, NACI should have communicated this better, that this was not a safety issue. This was just verifying the data. Is that accurate?
2: Right. Right. Exactly. So, Anytime you think about vaccines, you also have to think of two things that are completely separate or not completely, but generally speaking, separate. One is whether it's safe. And the second thing is whether it actually works. And in this case, the question was about whether it working. And at the time when Nancy released its statement, there the data was just coming out from these other countries that it is, in fact, working well. So, you know, why does America not need AstraZeneca? It's because they have other priorities with other vaccinations. They've been going very well. They don't need to take the time to use the resources to review the data and approve it. Whereas Canada, AstraZeneca was part of the the overall plan about uh, purchasing the doses and having them come here. So that's why it was a priority for uh, Health Canada to review the data as soon as possible and make recommendations around it.
0: Are you surprised that 19 countries in Europe have put a pause on this?
2: a little bit of surprise that they acted
0: um, quickly.
2: Uh, you know, the thing with vaccinations and any drug is that after it's rolled out, people do post-marketing surveillance, which is an excellent thing. It shows that the, that the system is working. But any time you detect any kind of adverse reactions after a vaccine has been given, that it's reported to the federal bodies. And in each of those countries, with data that was originally generated from Denmark, uh, it triggered those countries to put things on hold which means that they're only temporarily going to look at what's going on and see if there's truly, you know, this is a slightly different issue now, but if there is an increased risk of clotting as associated with the vaccine, so far it does not appear to be the case, but they are reviewing the data now.
0: A chatter from the Ontario Science Table today that uh, we are in a third wave or are certainly right on the doorstep of it. Your thoughts, and especially as we enter this third wave, man, I even hate to say that phrase, um, we do have long-term care fully vaccinated. We are moving into spring, or, uh, spring weather. Uh, are we to assume that the third wave is going to be uh, worse than the second?
2: Yeah, that's uh, it's a great question because there's two opposing forces going on right now. We know the third wave is driven by these variants of concern, and only in the last two weeks did new data come out from the UK showing that the variants are actually increased associated with increased mortality, increased death, whereas before we only thought it was increasing the transmissibility. Now we know people have worse outcomes with the virus. And then opposing that is the vaccination. So the faster we can get people vaccinated, then the less likely we're going to have a bad third wave, which unfortunately seems inevitable now. So at first, you know, at first thought, you'd think, well, the next wave can't be nearly as bad as the second because all the most vulnerable people are now vaccinated. And that's true. But hopefully, hopefully this other force of the variants causing people to die more frequently, hopefully that will be opposed by the vaccinations that are now rolling out.
0: The Prime Minister has said since the beginning of all of this that uh, we would be vaccinated uh, by September. Um, as we see the rest of the world vaccinate, um, won't that be more possible simply because if we're seeing the United States finish up by May, June and, and barbecuing by July, as the President said, we're probably going to see vaccines come in from other countries. Uh, the professor from Texas said, you know, at that point, they'll probably start uh, reserving such uh, for uh, underdeveloped countries. Unfortunately, Canada falls under that umbrella uh, because of the position we are in the world. But you, can you see this just coming, uh, the vaccine issue coming to an end in the summer, just simply because the rest of the world will be vaccinated, so therefore they will be extra around?
2: Yeah, you'd hope so. Right now it is a combination of supply and the capacity to deliver the vaccines. So two issues are going on. You'd hope that at least the capacity issue would be improved. That right now the pace we're going at is so slow across the country that people will look at that and think about better ways to actually do mass vaccination. Because once it gets, uh, we get into the next phases, we're talking about very, very large groups of people, millions of people in the next phase, phase two and phase three. So you'd hope that our capacity to vaccinate is much improved because at the rate we're going at, you're right. It's going to take a very long time. I mean, why should it take until September? The United States vaccinates more people in a day than Canada has vaccinated ever for COVID. That, that number should be very startling to Canadians that what we're doing here is not going in the right direction. It's going way too
0: slowly. And it seems, in my opinion, that the provinces are taking the blame. And is from what I can see, the provinces are basically all in the same situation. It's a lack of supply. I mean, we were talking to locals here in Hamilton that are at the health table. They're ready to open up First Ontario Centre. The situation is there's just not a, enough supply. And it seems we talk a lot about distribution, but we, we fail to say that we're still 54th in the world because we don't have enough vaccine coming in to actually get these sites up and running.
2: Absolutely, supply is an issue. It's it's a shame that we're already, uh, you know, three months into this and we still are where we are. We're the small percentage of people that we've vaccinated so far. It's it's kind of crazy when you think about Canada being such a well-resourced country to begin with. The supply is absolutely an issue, and you would hate to think that how slow it's going to go when the next phases start with everyone, millions of people waiting to get vaccinated. You hope at least things will improve by then. There's all promises of millions of shipments coming in from the various suppliers so hopefully that comes through
0: yeah and you know the situation is too is that now all of a sudden we're asking the provinces to administer months and months and months worth of vaccine all at once and i mean there's going to be there's going to be issues there i mean a- again the u.s is is feeding the sausage machine in there it's it's coming in it's going out but you know for canada again it's 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 a it's a lack of, of consistent supply which makes it more and more difficult to get these places up and running
2: It is. Absolutely. And, yeah, you'd hope that the provinces are making plans on how to do it as fast as the U.S. did. There's there's nothing that the U.S. has in terms of capacity to vaccinate that Canada doesn't. The population of Canada is about a tenth or just under a tenth of that. So why couldn't we do it as fast as the United States? As Outside of the issue of supply, absolutely. I mean, we have the, the manpower to do it. It should be happening fairly quickly.
0: Dr. Alan Baseman has been with us, Infectious Diseases, infections control, uh, Infection Control Physician with the University Health Network. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.